0: We are back for episode two of Dad Remembers Sports. We made it past the first podcast, and here we are. I'm your host, Grant Tunkel, and joined, as always, by the man himself, the namesake, my dad. Dad, how are you?
1: Not too bad. How about yourself today?
0: Doing all right. We are recording uh, about a week before Memorial Day 2020, so you're still on one end of a Zoom call, I'm on the other. How have things been since we last
1: checked in? Uh, so things are looking up because the weather's getting nicer, and you feel even if you just go and you go outside, you feel much better than being, you know, cooped up in in, in your uh, abode.
0: Well, luckily for the listeners, this is not uh, epidemiology today with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Tunkel, uh, and we're going to touch upon a lighter note. So, in last week's debut, we took things a little out of order. It was the 50th anniversary of Game 7 of the NBA Finals. So today, I'd like to start at the beginning. Uh, get a sense of your history as a fan of the teams that you root for. But before we do that, I want to introduce a couple of new segments. Now, Dad, you and I haven't actually talked about this. So what's your level of concern? I'll wing it with the best of them. You really do. That's a good point. <laughs> so the first new segment is, what did Dad make up? And that is essentially my chance to listen back to the previous podcast and play the role of Daniel Dale, where I fact check you about all the things you claim to have remembered and all the stats
1: you got wrong and, I remember one, I used Gus Johnson twice, once as a forward, once as a guard. Gus played forward. Freddie Carter, I think, played guard in that in that era. So I remember that. So I apologize for the listeners for confusing them that Gus had played both forward and guard for the moment. Well,
0: I, I appreciate you clarifying that, but in all honesty, you got everything else right. You really didn't make anything up. I was uh, I was pleasantly surprised and impressed.
1: You know, I can remember yesteryear, but I forgot what I had for breakfast.
0: That was going to be my next question. So uh, we'll skip that one then. So for today's edition of what did dad make up? Really not a whole lot. You nailed uh, the Luau Sindor three NCAA titles because freshmen weren't allowed to play. Uh, You nailed the fact that you weren't allowed to dunk in college basketball because of him. Uh, You basically got the ages of all of the Lakers three stars right. Uh, you were pretty spot on. You should give yourself a pat on the back for that. I, I don't know if you're aware, but this is an audio podcast, so no one actually saw you patting yourself on the back there.
1: Well, you never know what technology will come about in a couple of years. That's a good point. Maybe one day we'll release these as
0: video specials. Uh, now for the second news segment is uh, a chance for me to offer a little bit of a mea culpa, and I haven't quite titled it yet, but The gist of the segment is more along the lines of a question or two I wish I would have asked in last week's episode, and I'll get a chance to ask now. And for this week, the question really is,
1: first off, where were your seats in Game 7? Do you remember? The blue seats, because that's where the fans sat, the blue seats. The corporate people sat in what was then known as the red seats, the yellow seats, and the green seats. And then the blue seats were up at the rafters. And do you remember how much those tickets cost? If memory starts me correct, it's like $25 a ticket.
0: We'll have to uh, find an inflation calculator and determine what that's worth in today's dollars.
1: But there is one story I didn't tell. Go ahead. There is one story I didn't tell. I, I did mention I was scalping a set of tickets in order to pay for it. Right. So we each bought one set for ourselves and one set to scalp. Howie was too afraid to scalp, so he stood on the sidelines and I did the scalping. <laughs> and it was the Milwaukee Bucks last game against the Knicks. The gentleman had bought two tickets from me, and the Knicks blew them out, if, if memory serves me correct. I mean, just blew them out in the final game. The seats that we bought were on different sides of the arena, so we would never really be with the people we sold tickets to. And as we are leaving the garden really excited, the guy finds me and he points to me. And I said, uh-oh, he has to be angry. He paid three times for his value for a game that the Knicks blew out from game one. And what did the guy do? He handed me his business card and said, please call me if you have tickets for any of the next round. No kidding. It was was an incredible, I thought the guy was going to, you know, punch my lights out. Because (laughs) every big $75 a ticket for a game that was terrible because the Knicks just blew them out from the start.
0: That's really funny. Well, I'm glad you uh, did not get your lights knocked out uh, and you you live to tell the tale. So I guess now is as good a time as any to move on to the crux of today's episode and talk a little bit about how you became a fan of the Knicks, the Rangers, the Mets, and the Jets. I figure we'll start with the two MSG dwelling teams because it seems pretty straightforward. They were more or less the only show in town for a kid growing up in the five boroughs of New York. So just give us a little backstory. How did you end up rooting for the Knicks and the Rangers?
1: Well, I guess the backstory begins with my father. My father was a big sports fan. My older brother and my only brother uh, was a sports fan. He was four and a half years older than me, and by definition, I became a sports fan. And we were New York fans because most people who lived in the areas in which they were born were fans of that team in that era. As opposed to later on, when the Cowboys became quote America's team, and people started migrating and. You know to other teams everybody rooted for the team in their local area the knicks they were the only game in town um in in those days there was no new jersey americans or whatever you called them in those days so we became basketball fans and you know and of course we became Knicks fans the knicks were losers all along always terrible the celtics dominated basketball you know, forever. I think they won 11 straight championships or something like that. Um, so, you know, they were losers, but we rooted for our lovable losers until the late 60s, early 70s, when it all started to fall in place. As far as the ranges, there were six teams, the original six, as you know. Hockey was only broadcast on, um, I think, Channel 9 or Channel 11, not the 700 channels that exist today. And, you know, it was only the game of the week on a Saturday night or a Sunday night or something like that. So, you know, being sports oriented family, as you know, my mother had passed away when I was much younger, when I was eight and a half. So what we do, we watch sports a lot. Dad, my brother and I watch sports a lot. And we became big, avid, you know, Ranger fans. And in those days, if you, were, as you probably have read about, there were no helmets in those days. Goalies just started wearing a mask. I think it was Jacques Pont who started wearing a mask. So you, could, you you had a visual as to what the player looked like and you you built a relationship or an, an understanding of who that player was. Uh, basketball was, was was like I mentioned last week was a sport that every kid played in the schoolyard. so it was easy to gravitate to basketball. That makes sense to me
0: you know there are hoops all over New York city it's it's basically legendary the number of ball players that have come out of the boroughs but hockey I mean not only did you never play growing up you still can't skate you've never learned to skate uh, so how did a sport played on ice appeal to you as a young kid
1: it was a sport and that's what did little kids do they watched sports and they enjoyed sports you know tennis was was considered an elite sport by elitists we were far from elite kind of people we were <laughs> middle class lower middle class and we did what you know, the, five, the four major sports, which were really only, really it was only baseball, was the sport. Football was not what it is today. So basketball, you know, we all played street tag football and things like that. But, you know, these were the sports that we all grew up with.
0: Did you ever see a Rangers or Knicks game at the old Garden,
1: the Garden 3, if you will? Actually, I saw a Knicks game at the Garden 2. Oh, wow. On, on fifth, you know, at Garden Two, I had an uncle Harold, uh, as you've heard the story, who was my father's brother, who was a legendary gambler, from what I understood. And he would drag my brother and I to basketball games. He would take us out and made my father happy. And he took us to basketball games. Now, of course, I would always, being little, would say to my brother, "Why are we still here? That the Knicks are winning by ten points with a minute and thirty seconds to go." And then he said to me, you got to understand, there's a point spread. And he had to explain what a point spread was. And my uncle would hang around to the end of the game to see if he covered or didn't cover the game. That's funny. But what about about Rangers games? Hold on, but going going back to the old garden, if you sat upstairs where we did, if you sat past the first three rows, it was poorly constructed. So you had to stand to see if the action came towards your side of the court. Okay, so if you were mid court, you know not on the end lines of the basketball court the, it was so poorly constructed that, like I said, after the first two rows up the deck, you couldn't see if the if they would move the ball to the sideline, so basically it was poorly constructed arena hockey I remember going to very few games as hockey because it was more it was more of a sport that I guess lent itself to t v and it was you know. Tickets cost money, so there was not a whole lot of money to go around for entertainment value. And my Uncle Harold did not bet on hockey games. He bet on basketball games.
0: Fair enough. I, I wouldn't bet on hockey games either. They're a bit more random, it seems, but that's neither here nor there. But correct me if I'm wrong, the Rangers were the, first te- uh, the second team you had season tickets to? Because you were a jet season ticket holder in the late 70s? 78,
1: 79, I think. 79 was my first year um, in, the, in the Rangers. I had tickets in 1983, 84, and I think 85. Um, you know, I had tickets, uh, season tickets. I shared it with, I had one ticket. My friend Emil had another ticket. And we used to go to games. Uh, we sat 437, seat, row one, seats three and four and uh, we were part of the blue shape blue, blue seat media but again
0: you can't remember what you had for
1: breakfast this morning no but i remember 437 row 1 seats 3 and 4
0: can you name the leading scorer for the 1983 84 rangers no not at all not if you took not if you took three guesses it, could it be walk davlidge all right that he was number 1 let's go to number really? 2 and that was right wow right, i know let's go
1: to number 2 uh, Herbie was the coach i guess uh, ni-
0: n- 1982. No,
1: no, no 1984. 1984.
0: Could it have? have been Ron Duguay. Uh, no, Ron Duguay was not the second leading scorer. Okay, um, give me, give me a, give me a hint. Uh, centerman, 28 years old. Pierre Larouche was number two. Oh,
1: Larouche, the gifted pair of hands. What a great pair of
0: hands on Larouche. Not exactly a memorable New York Rangers team, uh, <laughs> finishing fourth in the Patrick Division. Uh, in 1983, 1984, but but that's neither here nor there. Uh, So, again, as I said earlier, the Rangers, the Knicks, the only games in town in their respective sports, but I want to get to what I think is the more interesting one, and that's your baseball fandom, the Mets. So, as I know, you grew up in a household of New York baseball Giants fans. And interesting enough, we were in the Bronx. Right. So, yeah, I should probably mention that. You grew up in the Bronx near yankee stadium and you were fans of the new york baseball giants how did that happen
1: my father was a fan of the new york baseball giants did you ever go to the Polo grounds to watch them play i went to the Polo grounds when the mets played there not when the giants i don't recall with the giants being there i do remember going to my father taking my brother and i to met games at the Polo grounds in 60 and 61 well, 62 and 63, whatever, 62 and 63, 62 and 63, right. I remember going to the ballgrounds then. Uh, legend has it that my father did take us to the ballgrounds to see the Giants play, but somehow that memory just doesn't stick in my head at this moment.
0: Well, you couldn't have been any older than five or six because the Giants and Dodgers moved west in 50, at the end of the 57 season, right?
1: Right. Being baseball fans that we were, in 1958 and 59 and 1960, since New York fans were still avid Giant baseball fans and avid Los Angeles Dodger fans, the Giants had a concept of recreating baseball games off a Western Union teletype with a fellow by the name of Les Kider, who is a legendary sports announcer. Les used to read a Western Union teletype and embellish what occurred he would take a drumstick and bang it off his microphone or a wooden board and say "base hit, left field he didn't know where the base hit was. He <laughs> was of course the teletype said single and if there was a and as i read later if the teletype was slow he would claim there was a rain delay he would claim the pictures in cat picture was having a conference he was just making it up because there was so much The baseball fans in New York were starving for baseball because who were not Yankee fans because the Dodgers and the Giants were all you know were huge and all of Brooklyn rooted for the Dodgers and all in a lot of New York rooted for the Mets rooted for the Giants. So you heard those games recreated on the radio. I remember listening in the schoolyard with my brother for afternoon games and at night we listened on transistor radios and I can't remember the radio station. It may have been wins. It. It wins, and you can uh, fact check that for next week's um, mm-hmm. podcast. But uh, Les Kaido would uh, do a recreation. We listen to it because what else did you do? We listen to sports all the time, and at night to satisfy our sports uh, appetite. We were listening to games from out of town, the Pittsburgh Pirate Games, the Cincinnati Red Games. And on a transistor radio on a clear night, you can turn your dial and pick up the game. And I remember listening to Bob Prince do Pittsburgh Pirate Games and Wade Hoyt, the legendary pitcher, do Cincinnati Red Games. But the funny part about Wade Hoyt was you thought you lost the station because it wasn't really – a, a station that was being broadcast in new york you had to really move the the, the transistor radio and get the dial we just talked very slowly and didn't talk a lot for an announcer so you thought you lost the station in between every once in a while and you listened to games underneath the pillow with a transistor radio at night to listen and to the games i don't know if
0: you remember this but uh but grandma and grandpa mom's grandma uh, mom's mom and dad uh they used to have a radio when Jamie and I were young. That was uh, had an extension that you could put underneath the pillow, so you could listen to the radio at night. And I used to think that was one of the coolest things ever. I, I mean, now obviously no one listens, or at least you know I don't have a radio under my pillow, uh, and I'm I assume you don't as well. That's correct. So, Dodgers, Giants, they move west. Uh, for the uninitiated, obviously you're not going to become a New York Yankees fan. That would have been that would have been sacrilegious. So. Was it just a case of National League Baseball comes back to New York and you figured, what the heck, I might
1: as well check it out? wasn't about checking it out. It was National League Baseball and we were starving to watch baseball. Now, again, you have to set the scene. Baseball was not on television. You know, you had the game of the week on a Saturday. So, you know, you saw Met home games on TV. You didn't see 9,000 baseball games like you see today. You know, on all the stations. So, yes, National League Baseball was our flavor. And, uh, and as you recall, when the Mets began and still are, their colors were, were a combination of dodgy colors and giant colors on their uniforms the blue, the orange, combination of giant colors and them um, dodgy colors. So, we were, yes, National League fans and we became that way. And what's interesting is when the Dodgers or the Giants came to town, that's when the pole grounds, when they were the original plate, would be a complete sum up.
0: Who was your favorite Met as a kid growing up?
1: Well, you'd have to go by era. Uh, At the beginning, it was um, guys like Ed Cranepool, who were a local kid, first baseman, um, who was I think 19 years old when he joined the Mets. Uh, So he was it. As we got later on into it, it, you know, you had the Cleon Joneses and the Tom Seavers, of course. Tom Seaver, you know, I've told you the story a thousand times how I didn't move in the Chicago Cub game when he went eight and two thirds and Jimmy Qualls broke it up, and I finally moved my leg and I was in so much pain because I was so superstitious. (laughs) Wanted that that, uh, no hitter. Um, You know, we finally did get to that no hitter, you and I, with Johan Santana. Um, uh, So, you know, those those were the guys you rooted for. They were, they were lovable losers. But nobody could ever top
0: Willie Mays in your eyes.
1: Well, Willie was the, the greatest ballplayer I ever saw. He was a five-tool guy as they as they go. Um, he could have broken uh, probably the legitimate home run record of, of, Babe, of Babe Ruth had he not gone to service in 52 and 53. He missed most of 52 and all of 53. Um, Willie probably could have stolen, you know, a hundred bases if he wanted, but he only stole bases if you needed a base. It was not just stealing bases like Maury Wills did, just for the hell of stealing bases. Willie, Willie was the, um, Willie was an athlete who did what it took to win a game. And whether he threw a guy out, made a tremendous catch, I mean, he, he did it all. Willie was the best player. Now, of course, in New York, you had Yankee fans who would tell you, Mickey, Mickey was a great player, but he didn't have the physical capabilities because of injuries. But be that as it may, Willie, Willie was the best player in baseball. And to me, he's still um, the legendary, the, the, the greatest living baseball player. As you know, on my desk is a, um, uh, a couple of uh, homages to Willie Mays, because to me, he was the man.
0: Was it a thrill when he joined the Mets uh, in the early 70s?
1: 72, I think he joined the Mets in 72. And he played a year and a half or two years. Um, Yeah, a year and a half. He got traded for Charlie Williams, as I recall. Um, And when Willie joined the Mets, it was like, wow, look, the the local kid, because Willie was a local kid, comes home. And uh, I remember going to Willie Mays night, you know, because Willie was my hero as a baseball player. You know, he was the greatest baseball player I ever ever saw. Who would be second on that list? That's a tough one. I never thought about that one. Um we'll have to come back to the one i I don't know I'm right. not... i'll let you I'll let you ruminate on that mm-hmm. one It would be a distant second to of me.
0: of course, of course, you know, I grew up hearing you tell tales of Willie Mays and uh you know learning about him and his history and and his impact on the game and and his prowess at i mean i I love listening to you, wax poetic about the say hey kid
1: well, I mean he made catches that nobody made, he could throw the ball like nobody. he took extra bases when he needed an extra base he could he could he hit a home run if you needed a home run. And he played in a ballpark that was not conducive to hitting home runs. He played in Candlestick Park. When he played in New York, he could be the regular right-handed hitting power hitter he was. Candlestick, the wind blew incredibly from left to right. So he had to alternate his swing in order to work it out. Because you could hit a shot a ton, and it would be a normal pop-up to left field because the wind was that strong out in Candlestick.
0: So now let's switch gears just a bit. This is uh, a little bit more perplexing to me because the Giants never disappeared, the football Giants. How did you end up being a New York Jets fan?
1: We were New York Giant fans. My father had gone to every iteration of Giants football, whether, I forget the original names, but by that time my brother and I were looking for something new, something our own, okay? And at that time, we were living in Forest Hills, and the Jets came along. The Jets came along, well, well, actually the Titans came along, and we went to a couple games at the Polo Grounds, and then they became the New York Jets, and we could get into that story if you want. They became the New York Jets, and it was an exciting brand of football compared to the old NFL. The old NFL was more like college football in the old days. First down run, second down run, third down, possibly pass. The NFL was a, AFL was a wide open football league. They had quarterbacks uh, who were retreads from the NFL, uh, but they also had young guys who just tossed the ball all over the place. So it was an exciting brand of football and they were being covered on major networks. So it was competing with the NFL and it was exciting in addition, as I recall, they had a two-point conversion, not the stodgy old one-point conversion. They had names of players on the back of the uniform, which didn't exist in the NFL. Now, for those uh, traditionalists like those, like the USC fans and Penn State fans who don't believe in it, it was it was new and different, and it was exciting. Uh, may not have been as good as the NFL on a talent-wise on, you know, uh, a full 50 man roster, but it was an exciting brand of football and it was fun to watch.
0: So you said there's a story around how the Titans became the Jets.
1: Yes, there is a story. The team was originally owned by a guy named Harry Wisma. Um, they had payroll problems didn't always could always make payroll players threatened to not play because of it. Ha- Harry went bankrupt and a consortium of, uh, Owners bought the team. One named uh, Sonny Werblin, uh, Leon Hess, and a bunch of other guys—guys guys who own racetracks and things like that. Sonny ran the team until finally, uh, and when Sonny bought, when sunny took over the team, they renamed, rebranded to the New York Jets from the Titans, and um, they went out to compete against the NFL. And Sonny eventually the 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 rest of the ownership didn't like the way Sonny was doing it, and Leon Hess became the managing partner, and Leon was there until he passed away. But the Jets were exciting. They opened up Shave Stadium. I remember living in Forest Hills and went to the first game uh, at Shea Stadium and getting there very early. And it was just the, my first NFL game that I'd ever gone to, and it was just wow, seeing these behemoths, you know, on the, on on the field.
0: I didn't realize you were at the first ever Jets game at Shea Stadium. Yes. Do you remember where you sat for that one? Because I know you remember your old Jets season tickets in Shea Stadium. It was,
1: it was in the upper deck, uh, not down the left field line. It was near home plate, way upstairs.
0: And then, of course, obviously the Jets famously draft Joe Namath in 65, I believe.
1: Well, the end of 64
0: for the 65 season. Right. That's correct. And we all know how that story turned out. Uh, What was it like watching uh, Broadway Joe light up the town? You have to back up. Sure,
1: sure. Back up. In the early years of the NFL NFL and AFL, the AFL had a draft of of football players out of college, and the NFL drafted the same guys. Right. Competed on a monetary basis who they could sign. What gave the first major player to be drafted in the AFL was a guy named Billy Cannon, who was a uh, Heisman Trophy winner out of LSU, and he went to the uh, Houston Oilers at that point, and that's how credibility began. They had some very wealthy owners. They had Bud Adams, an oil man. They had Lamar Hunt, you know, the silver man. They had Barrett Hilton, the hotel guy. So they had a it, was a it was a real credible league. These guys had real money. And they went head-to-head trying to outbid and, and, and sign guys. The Jets signed um, Joe Ramoth, I think, right after the Orange Bowl, underneath the goalposts. In- <laughs> I mean, you could fact check that one, but somehow that sticks. That may be urban legend or maybe the truth, but I like thought I, that I remember that one. It sounds good to me. And Joe, Joe was um, the quintessential, um, you know, uh, Broadway guy. That's how he got the nickname, Broadway Joe. The Fu Manchu mustache, single, always with women under his arm. He, Joe, was, Joe was flamboyant. He lived the life. So I want to go back just a little bit
0: for a second. So you said you picked the Jets Because you wanted something of your own? How'd that that sit with your father? He didn't mind. He didn't mind because he liked watching sports. Football
1: was not his number one sport. Baseball was his sport.
0: Fair enough. I still don't think, uh, piggybacking off what we said last week, I still don't think uh, revolting against your decisions as a a sports fan would have flown in our household. Uh, Clearly not. So obviously, uh, we've got your backstory as a a Rangers fan, a Knicks fan, uh, a Mets fan, a Jets fan. And anyone who knows you, and for those that don't know that one of your proudest, it's hard to call it an accomplishment, really, but one of your proudest things is having been a Jet season ticket holder for 40-some-odd years now. How did you get your first set of season tickets? How did that come about? What were the machinations to get to get that going?
1: It was one of those things I said to myself, this is, you know, I'm a big Jet fan, Football was the first set of uh, real, you know, season tickets. It was not an onerous sport in which to go to, uh, as far as the number of games, it was eight games a year, maybe it was seven of those. I don't know if it was, when it went from 14 to 16, I can't remember. Uh, but there weren't that many games to go to, so it didn't seem like it was – well, one could look at it as an investment in money. Now, I was single at that point. I had not met your mother yet. Um, so I was single at that point, and um, I was going to games. I went to games with my, with my brother, and uh, we had fun going to those games. So that was, the, uh, that was the impetus. Like I said, it wasn't expensive. I was fortunate enough to make enough money, and it was also one of those where it was not a lot of big investment of days or time to go to a game. Did they draw a lot of fans uh, in the early days at Chase Stadium? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Because it was novel. And Joe had, you know, the first couple of years it was novel. And then after that, when Joe Namath came on board, it became a, uh, it became a phenomenon. So there you have it.
0: My father, the Knicks fan, the Rangers fan, the Mets fan, the Jets fan, the longtime sufferer. Uh, any, uh, any last things you want to say about any of those four teams? Do uh, you wish you had any of those back?
1: No. No, I would have liked to have seen a Ranger Cup prior to 94. Um, I would still, you know, still want to get to that uh, that Super Bowl, you know, because Giant fans have gotten to the Super Bowl. Uh, I'd love to get to that Super Bowl for the Jets. Uh, The Knicks no longer, you know, I I got to the mountaintop twice with the Knicks in 70 and 73. So, so far, so good. And, you know, the Mets are always entertaining. So, um, so far, so good. No complaints.
0: Well, if ever there was going to be a year the Jets would make it to and win the Super Bowl, it, it would be the season where fans aren't allowed in the stands, right?
1: Yeah, but there may be a crowd at the Super Bowl.
0: <laughs> I, for some reason, I can't see you giving up on all of this uh, dedication to social distancing just to stand outside of a covered arena and, and maybe listen to the Jets win a Super Bowl.
1: I don't know about that. I don't know how that would play out. Um, it, it's going to be quite a, quite a year to see what really happens in, in football. Uh, I can't see them allowing just 10,000 people into the stands. I, I just don't see what's going to happen here. It's really, um, we're in uncharted territory.
0: Well, as I said at the start of the podcast, good thing this is not epidemiology today. Uh, neither of us are doctors. We never played any on TV. Uh, and, and I think we'll leave it at that. So, Dad, uh, thanks for hopping on uh, the Zoom with me. I'm glad to have gotten a, a little bit more information about your backstory as a fan, as a fan. Uh, and I actually did not know you were at the first Jets game ever at Chase Stadium. So that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. Yes, it was. Well, Dad, thanks again. Uh, I hope you've uh, enjoyed spending uh, more than five minutes on the phone with your son and, and not uh, ushering me off the call like you normally do.
1: That's a cheap shot.
0: Well, is it, is it or is it not true that most phone calls end with you saying, all right, I've had enough of you, goodbye.
1: But that, that's exactly true, but I'm not sure it always ends in five minutes. It could go in two. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Be well. All right.
0: Well, you take care.
1: I love you. And mm-hmm. we'll talk soon. Be good.